Thank you to Scott, who last week uh, led us um, as we continued in this journey, um, looking at, uh, at the story of Jacob. And so today, we continue in, in our story of Jacob, and uh, we've got just a few weeks left. Um, and so we are, um, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. And so I invite you uh, to hear these words. Genesis says... The same night, he, being Jacob, got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we gather after a stormy night. The rains have ceased from falling. The winds have slowed. And in this moment of peace, we gather together as sisters and brothers in Christ. We know, as Darren prayed, that there is much going on in our world. Much that we do not understand. Far too much that we do. And so in the midst of that, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds even now. That we might seek to ask what it is that you would teach us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So this story is moving pretty quickly. If you weren't here last week or the week before, it's easy to get left behind. Jacob has been with his uncle Laban for 20 years or so. 
And finally, he's kind of tired of his uncle's ways, and so he's ready to depart. And uh, uh, Scott talked about this a little bit last week. And, and so he finally, Laban came, he kind of caught up with them, but then he, he figured out that, um, that he ended up kind of releasing him because he heard from the Lord that he should release Jacob. And so Jacob, finally, it's just Jacob and all of his household. And the only thing now that stands between Jacob and the promise that God had given him many years before that he would finally be able to go back home again, the only thing that stood between him and home is Esau. Of course, that's no small thing. The last time Jacob had known anything about Esau, what he had known was that Esau hated him and was ready to kill him. This is why he had fled so many years earlier. And so Jacob is preparing for this, right? The prayer that Pastor Scott talked about last week, the prayer before God as he prepared for this meeting with Esau. And for some reason... For some reason here, our passage tells us, Jacob has his whole household leave him alone. They go across the river, across the stream, so that Jacob is, perhaps for the first time in 20 years, Jacob is alone. Why is it that Jacob wanted to be alone? Did he just need to carve out some space for himself? Did he not want his family to see just how afraid he really was? Was he, was he fearful that if Esau, if they saw the way that Esau dealt with Jacob, that it wouldn't go well and that, and that he didn't want them, his family to see that? We don't really know why. There's no explanation. We just know that Jacob is at least seemingly alone. And then Jacob begins to wrestle. Now, this is really a strange and ambiguous passage. I mean, scholars wrestle with this passage all the time. It's, it's both kind of a scholar's delight because they can do so much with it, and it's a preacher's nightmare because you can do so much with it. You don't know exactly what to do, and you're not even sure what you do is going to be right. But we've got some space to fill, so we're going to give it a try. But it is a passage that is full of ambiguities. If you were to expect what you, if you were just first reading this, you would not expect all of a sudden Jacob to be wrestling with some man. And we don't know who the man is, but Genesis tells us it's a man. Of course, as you continue to look at it, it seems it's not just a man, it's actually God. Though Genesis never tells us that explicitly, it doesn't seem. But we can assume that it's God, but we don't know that yet. So there they are, and they are wrestling, but the wrestler, it seems, cannot prevail, which maybe would be normal if the wrestler wasn't God. That seems a little bit odd. What's going on there? Could God really not prevail? Is he just pretending that he couldn't prevail? We, we don't know for sure. We just know that they keep wrestling, and then all of a sudden, the wrestler decides to injure Jacob's hip, right? And you would think if he could do this so easily, he could probably get away. We don't really know for sure, but we know that he touched it or maybe he struck it. The Hebrew, again, is ambiguous. We don't know for sure. We just know for sure that Jacob is crippled. And the man wants to get free. The wrestler keeps saying, I want to get free. And why does he need to be free? Because the sun is about to come up. What, is he a troll, right? 
I, I mean, it's very odd, right? And you think, well, okay, he needs to get free because of the fact that, you know, for the wrestler, the wrestler is worried about his own safety unless as some have suggested, if this really is God, and if throughout the Old Testament it always says you cannot see God face to face and live, perhaps what the wrestler is trying to do is to actually protect Jacob. Because if the sun comes out and Jacob sees clearly and not just in the shadows with whom he is wrestling, then Jacob is going to be harmed. We don't know, but what we do know is that Jacob will not let go. I mean, Jacob is holding on, and even though he has a dislocated hip, even though he seems to be injured, Jacob holds on and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is also kind of a strange thing because you you would think a blessing, it would just be something. I don't know, you're going to get this, you're going to get that, but that's not what it is. What he simply does is he says, what is your name. Which is kind of strange because if it was God, you would think he knew what his name was. Right? And so Jacob tells them, well, my name is Jacob. And then the wrestler says, no, 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 no. Not anymore, it's not. Your name now is Israel. Because you are one who has striven or struggle with God and overcome. Then, of course, Jacob, maybe he's just being polite, says, well, and what is your name? And really in this, it doesn't perhaps come out in the scripture as I read it, is a bit of incredulousness from the wrestler. It's a sense of, don't you know who I am? And all of a sudden, it seems he's gone, and Jacob realizes who this is that he has been wrestling with. So he calls the place Peniel, if you will, because he's been there. He's seen God sort of face to face and lived. And from there, then, Jacob gets up, and he begins to limp towards Esau. Full of ambiguities, this passage is. Wondering, the wrestler, why not just say it's God? Wondering why he doesn't know his name. Wondering how hard he hit him. All of these things, so many details. And you can get so caught up in all of those and still not know if you know exactly what is happening. But as I've been thinking about this passage, as you take a bit of a step back... And perhaps kind of blur your eyes a little bit. One of the things you begin to realize is that in this passage there are actually some remarkably beautiful images of Jacob, of God, of us, and of our relationship with God and with others. There are some images, some symbols here that perhaps we would be wise to pay attention to. A few months ago, uh, our daughter, uh, Winnie, who's five years old, she's in the preschool here at Noah's Ark, which, if I could just briefly say, the preschool here at Noah's Ark is amazing. Miss McGraw and Mrs. LaFoon are fantastic. All three of our children have gone there, and the next one who's ready, she can't wait until the fall when she gets to go, and we can't wait to see her get out of the house for a little bit. So it's going to be fantastic. We have this great preschool. I just want you to know that. It's just completely shameless plug. 
Well, they have this night every year where the fathers get to go and kind of, you know, talk to their kids and get to see what they normally do during the day. And earlier, uh, during the actual preschool day, when the fathers aren't around, they ask them several questions. One of the questions that they ask the students is, what do you most like to do with your dad? Well, Bromwin answered, my guess is in the same way that the previous couple answered, though I couldn't recall for sure, which is that she loves to play daddy tackle with her dad. Now, Daddy Tackle is a bit of a misnomer because it's not like they're just running and I'm just randomly tackling them. I I wouldn't put it past me, but that's not what this is. Daddy Tackle is where I get on the ground up in their room where there's carpet, and I get on the ground and I grab a hold of them. And I've got maybe a leg over one of them. Another, It gets more difficult the more children you have. Another leg over another one. I grab an ankle. I grab an arm. And then they do everything they can to get free. And man, you should just see them. I mean, they're just huffing and puffing. And they start getting red in the face. And they begin to kind of sweat a little bit. And they're doing, I mean, they are trying so hard to get free. And I kind of maybe let them go for a second and grab them again. And they think they're free. And, and so they just keep going. And then every once in a while, they break loose, right? Which really at this stage, uh, though it is getting more difficult, is just kind of me letting go of them. And, and they run away and they act like they're so happy. Oh, we're free. But interesting enough, they always get just close enough to be caught up again because they hate actually being free, right? And so then I grab them again and they feign as if, oh, I can't believe you caught us again, daddy. And, and there they are. And it's just this kind of, they would play this for hours. And so we just, we don't, but they would. And so we just play this game. They just love daddy tackle. Can we play daddy tackle tonight? And I was thinking about why is it that they love this game of daddy tackle so much? There's probably a lot of reasons. One of them, of course, is it's just kind of active. It's not just them sitting there watching TV or something, uh, you know. But it's also, I think there's a sense, of course, that they know that they have daddy's undivided attention. Right? Daddy is not distracted by anything in the midst of daddy tackle. He is right there. I think they love the fact that we are physically touching one another. You know, we're not all of our kids. A couple of our kids are snugglers. But I think they all actually love being physically close. I think most healthy relationships, there's something about that, especially with a parent that you love touching. I've shared before, even in the midst of when my father and I were uh, having difficult times, when I would go to visit him, if the TV was on, I loved sitting not just near him, but actually close enough that we were touching There was something that even if words could not be spoken, there was something to just touching and feeling my father's closeness. I think that they love it because they can see how strong they're getting and maybe they can try to get away. But I also think they like it with, because they can feel how strong their parent is, right? And, and, and they can feel that sense of strength of holding on and it gives them this sense and experience of protection, of, of safety, that we're not all alone. All of these things, it seems to me, they love about this. And so I was, I was looking at this particular scene. Usually when I think about the wrestling, it's just, you you know, and it's just, you know, we're going at it and who's going to win. And that's the way I picture wrestling. But I 
wonder if it isn't a bit more like daddy tackle that they are playing right here. That it's God the Father being with his child Jacob. And there's a sense of this kind of beautiful symbolism or an image of them wrestling with one another. And knowing that both of them have one another's full and undivided attention. There's a sense of kind of physical proximity. There's this great sense where God surely, it seems to me, could prevail and yet he doesn't. He decides not to leave his child's presence. He stays right there. And Jacob, remember Jacob some 20 years earlier, whenever he said, whenever God told him, okay, I'm going to do all these things for you. And Jacob said, well, if you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this. But in this particular scene, Jacob is not saying if. Jacob is grabbing God as hard as he can, holding it fast to him and saying, I will not let go until there is some blessing that comes out of this scene. It is this remarkably, it seems to me, beautiful view of after all of this time, as God had called Jacob from before he was ever born and watched him as he went through his ways, sometimes healthy, many times sinful, as he went through all of that, as he listened to the unconditional or the very conditional uh, reaction and response, of Jacob throughout all of that to see almost kind of culminating in this beautiful image that wrestling is an image of relationship. And that at long last, Jacob is saying in the midst of this, we will be, I will be in full relationship with you. It's this beautiful image, it seems to me, that after all this time, perhaps this is the passage in all of Jacob that reveals what that looks like when you wrestle. We have that. Most of us have that in our own relationships, right, with spouses or siblings or friends. There is always this sense of wrestling, it seems to me, in some image where you're not sure, are we hugging each other or are we trying to squeeze one another to death? There's always in any relationship This kind of wrestling, this kind of daddy tackle, if you will, that I think we see in this passage. But here's the thing. It's another image that I think far too often we, perhaps especially the church in America, happily overlook. Which is that Jacob asks for a blessing. He thinks that this relationship, as all relationships should, should have some sort of blessing for him. I should be blessed in some way because of this relationship. And so he begs. It's almost like Esau with his father Isaac that we saw long ago. And he begs for this blessing. And yet, he walks away not just with the blessing but with a limp. Jacob walked into this wrestling match, into waiting for this relationship, into this thing with both legs working completely fine. And after this wrestling and after he got blessed, he walked away like this. 
See, I think that so often the church, when it comes to faith and their relationship with God, they are a church and a people who love to think about the comfort of God. But don't like to think about what the cost will be. We love a faith where there is salvation that we get to have but perhaps not faith that means we have to sacrifice. We like, uh, we like a faith and a relationship where there is life that is given, but we are not nearly so keen on a relationship that will result in our limping in some form or fashion. And yet from this story of Jacob all the way to the cross, it becomes very clear. And Jesus, let me remind you, never makes any bones about this. He always says, you will need to count the cost. You need to realize, you need to pick up your cross. There is always in relationship, there is both blessing and joy, and there is cost and sacrifice and a limp. And if you are not wrestling with both of those, then there is a good chance you aren't fully in understanding what it means to be in relationship with God. I, we see this, right? Even in our everyday life, I was thinking about my wife. If you pay attention, there are some days, perhaps some Sundays, when she walks, and she walks with a little bit of a limp. And the reason why she walks with that limp is not necessarily because she's been wrestling with God, but it's because she wrestled with four children in her womb and then trying to get them out. And because of that, her hip has never been the same. And there are days when she wakes up and it is visceral. That pain, she remembers it because she can feel it so strongly. And what is she reminded of each time? She is reminded of the four remarkable blessings that we have in our children. But of course, on most days, she would always say it had been worth it. And almost every relationship that we are in, for those who pay attention, if you are in a relationship with someone, not to mention God, and all you are getting out of it is blessing after blessing, guess what? This is not a very rich or deep relationship. Because every relationship, especially those with God, are always going to cost us something. And oftentimes, the problem is that we as staff, as pastors, what we try to do is sell a faith where there is little cost and little sacrifice because we are afraid if we don't, nobody will come. But that is not a faith in God that we see throughout any part of Scripture. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Fritz Breisch a couple of months or so ago. Fritz is kind of real, the real catalyst behind the Jeremiah House. You guys, most of you know the Jeremiah House, our partnership with Wheeler Ministry and the, the rehab, the drug and alcohol rehab that they run. And 
it's kind of a, we are kind of a reacclimation house, if you will. I and mean, when they're done with that rehab program, they then uh, come to Jeremiah House and, and they're not just kind of, you know, thrown back out to society and they become a part of the church body. If you were here for the congregational gathering, you got to hear from one of those guys, Ronnie Jordan. And so I was, I was struck by something Fritz said. In fact, so struck that when I looked over this passage, I thought to myself, I'd like to hear Fritz say this again. And so, Fritz, I'm going to ask if, you'll, if you will come forward now. And um, I, I just want to, you, you don't have to talk for too long. <laughs> but we got like 17 minutes or 16 minutes Sweet. at least. So, um, but I just want to ask you the question. First of all, just tell me in what ways has working with the Jeremiah House and those guys, in what ways has that been a blessing over the last three years or so? Yeah, well, it's been a ministry that's had very strong blessings. Um, we have definitely seen where we are helping people in a moment of need. And the instance that I think about is Sal Raham, who came to us living in his car and homeless because he was living in an apartment where his apartment mate chose to start selling drugs and he needed to get out of that environment. So he was literally living in his car the week before he moved into the Jeremiah house. So just a strong need there. Secondly is really deep, meaningful relationships and friendships. Um, and I think of Ronnie Jordan when I think of that as an example. When I see Ronnie, I can't help but want to hug him. He's my friend. I feel like some way we're connected in this life because of the things we've been through together. But not just me, for many people with Ronnie and, and the people that have been involved. And then third is just you all. The people that have been involved even in small ways, but so many in big ways in the Jeremiah House. The people that have been on the steering committee, people that have brought meals to the men, people that have helped at the house, accountability partners. I mean, I have gotten to witness love in action. People just being the very best followers of Jesus Christ in the way that they show love to people. I, it's really been amazing. And so what has it cost you to be a part of the Jeremiah? Absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> that's the theme today. No, uh, just kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah, you better not say that. <laughs> Go ahead. It's, uh, it's been really hard work and time-consuming, and uh, absolutely nothing about it has been easy. Uh, I've been amazed at how hard and difficult it's been, but uh, candidly, you know, we're pretty good in Zionsville with dealing with hard work. Uh, most of us are hard workers. That's, that's not been really the hard part. The hard part um, has been heartbreak. You know, just a couple weeks ago, uh, we thought we were gonna have the house full we had two men living in the house, and we had a couple guys that were looking to come into the house. And then on Super Bowl Sunday, one of the guys uh, broke one of the uh, rules of the house, and we had to uh, have him move out. And then later that week, um, a gentleman who we thought was going to move in lost his job, and so he can't move in now. And uh, I'm just thankful that the Patriots lost the Super Bowl, or I think I would have had a little breakdown. Just everything was not going well that week. Um, so it's, but it's been heartbreaking. It's the other side of the deep relationships. I care about these people, and the people involved care about these people. And when things go wrong, it is truly heartbreaking. It's like a shot to the gut. Um, and then third, personally, is my pride. Um, there's kind of two aspects of this. One is, 
I like to think I can solve problems. And when I find out that I can't, uh, you know, that's a, a little bit of a shot to my pride. Uh, you know, I'm reasonably good at it at work, um, but in this situation I've learned I, I can't really solve any of these problems. And I'm amazed at how little I really do seem to be able to solve. And then there's another aspect that's, that if I really am honest and I search is, you know, I, I, I probably want uh, some accolades. I want it to go well. I, I want to be, I want, I wish there were 10 guys that I could show you that were up here on stage with me from the Jeremiah house who things were just going great. Um, and so there's a little bit of pride about wanting to have a success that, um, you know, I've had to sacrifice, that I've had to give up, that I've had to examine and uh, let go of. So let me just ask you kind of a quick audible from what I told you I was going to ask you. Um, how has this shaped your relationship with Jesus, this process of these blessings and these costs? Well, wrestling, it would be a really good term for that. Um, yeah, there have been, everything about the Jeremiah house is, is big. So the mountaintop experiences are huge and joyful and amazing. Um, but the heartbreaking moments are uh, bringing me to my knees. Um, but, but they bring me to my knees in prayer to Christ. And I've, I've realized just the absolute total dependence on Jesus in this ministry. Great. Great. Thank you, Fritz. Sure. I appreciate that. Thanks, brother. One of the things I love about Fritz is he, does, he is not a highly emotional person. But he shoots it straight. And so when we talked about this three or four months ago, whenever it was, and I just said, how is it going? And he, he was very honest about, about the cost as well as the blessings. Um, and I, I just thought, this is, this is what we need to hear. Because so often, right, when it comes to ministry, we just want you to know that you're going to be blessed. You're going to bless others. And we do as much as we can to kind of gloss over. But I don't think we should because I think it is so often in the costs that we actually begin to look more and more like Jesus and less and less like who we were before or the world around us. Right, this is one of the reasons why we are so involved with the Jeremiah House. One of the reasons why I have great hope for our work with Straight Up Ministries on the northwest side of Indy. It's one of the reasons why I'm continually talking about loving your neighbors because these are all highly relational kinds of ministries. And if we are not in relational kinds of ministries, then I struggle with wondering whether or not we are in ministry at all. And if it is not costing us in some way beyond even the financial if it is not costing us, if we are not walking with some sort of limp after having dealt with these ministries, then we want, may want to question whether we are in the right ministries at all. As Fritz said, we are fixers, so many of us. We want to come in, we want to find the problem, we fix it, and then we move on. You are never done when it comes to relationships. I know husbands and wives who have been married 40 or 50 or 60 years, and guess what? They still have issues. They still have to make sacrifices. In fact, it seems oftentimes just to grow, especially when you see one of them, the husband or the wife, who begins to suffer medically in some way. That's where the real marriage so often begins. 
But we learn through the cost and through the sacrifice. And in our society where comfort and convenience seem to be what everyone is going for, that is remarkably difficult. I mean, I just rented a car a week ago, a month ago. When was it? December. I have a car. I bought an O2 that I still have. It was new. It was great. It was wonderful. They have done some amazing things in the last 16 years. I mean, the back seats, my girls were with me. They were like, the back seats, Daddy, they're heated. You should have seen them, right? When you want to go in reverse, you don't even need to look up there, right? What do you do? You look in the little screen, and it has like this green and yellow. I needed a parallel park, and there it was. It was so easy. Uh, Whenever I get a phone call or we listen to a book on, not a book on tape, that dates me, but a, a book on the phone, right? I didn't just have to crank it up and be like this. It came through the actual system of the vehicle. Now, some of you are like, well, yeah, duh. And you know why? Because we think that's normative, we think this is the new normal, right? Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's what everybody, I mean, that's just, yeah, that's great. Because why? We keep raising our desires and what we think we need for comfort. And you see, this is, a kind of, this is about cost, the cost of relationship. And it cultivates us into a different people. Now, there's one last thing. I thought we could end there, but as I looked at this, there's one last symbol I think is critical for us, especially during the Lenten season. God asks, what is your name? Shouldn't he know his name? But I was struck by something that David Lowe's and some others that I was reading suggested, which is that Perhaps what God is actually doing is he is allowing Jacob to finally wrestle with his name. Remember, names in this story in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and even today, are remarkably important. They're more than just letters on a page or a stone or wherever. They are an identity, They tell you something about one's character. That's why we have Jacob and Esau as the hairy one. Jacob, of course, what is he? He's the heel grabber, the one through his whole life he has kept trying to grab more and more things, more and more power. He has lived his life in this way. And in this moment, perhaps God is saying to Jacob, what is your name? Who are you and is this who you want to be? Do you want to continue to be the heel grabber? And he is offering him this opportunity, creating the space for the first time perhaps for him to have a sense of a confession or repentance even. Which is why God does what? He then offers him a new name. A new name. Start a new identity. That in this moment, God is giving Jacob an opportunity to say, do you want to continue to be understood with your past and what you have done your whole life? Or are you now finally ready to have a new name, Israel? And Israel can mean so many things. I mean, Genesis says it means the one who has striven or struggled with God and overcome 
Of course, it can also mean that God is the one who struggled with you and overcame. It can also mean God who kind of rules or, or one who understands who God is. All of these words, though, are words of relationship. In other words, God is saying, if you can be honest about this name that you have had, then I am going to offer you a new Name of one who is in relationship with God. I love what Romans 8 says, which is one who is, you are now a child of God. And in this season of Lent, it seems to me that we have an opportunity to ask ourselves, what are the names that describe us? All of us have some name that we have, not a given name typically, but some other name that defines us. It may be a name that you were given long ago out on the playground. Maybe it's a name that said you were never quite fit enough. You were never quite good enough. You were always the last one picked, the one that you weren't quite smart enough, that you're hyperactive. That's who I am. That's my identity. Maybe it's a name given to you by a parent. You're kind of a disappointment. Why are you always underachieving? Maybe it's a name from our past, something we actually did, a sin or a brokenness or something, and we cannot get past it. I am a divorcee, and that's all I can think about. That is who I am. And for some reason, that has inhibited your ability to be able to take on the new name of God, the new name of the reconciled one, of the child of God. Or maybe it's even a name that you think is a good name. In our area, one of the things I've seen is there are a lot of people here who are named hard workers, overachievers. And that can be a great thing. But I have also seen how those kind of names can become chains if they are your identity. Because as soon as you retire, or as soon as you get fired... Or no matter what, if you keep striving for that, that your relationships with God and with others can begin to crumble because you feel like you have to live into that name. I don't know what that name for you is. I don't know if it is Jacob. I don't know if it's Esau. I don't know what name that is. But I do know that as someone suggested, every week we should be reminded That our true name is child of God. And so this morning, in your bulletin, hopefully, you are given a little white piece of paper. And if you don't have it, just rip the bulletin up. And if you don't have that, I don't know what to say, but just do something. And I'm going to say for us a prayer of confession. If it's not a confession for you because of the fact that it's a name given by somebody else that you can't seem to let go of, then let's call it a prayer of honesty. And I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to have a couple of minutes just to, or a minute just to write that name down. And then I am going to offer us in this Lenten practice a chance to walk forward to put that name in the basket and to be given a new card that reminds you of who you are. 
that your identity is not in anything that you are doing or have done. It is first and foremost in the fact that you are in relationship with God. You are a child of God. Let us pray. God, we struggle so often with the names that we have given ourselves, the names that others have given to us, the names of our own struggles or sin or brokenness. And so, Lord, as a public confession, as a public moment of honesty, and as a private time, Lord, to reflect on that name, I give you this next 60 seconds for us to write down what that name is, not for your neighbor to know, but just between you and God. And so let us do so now.